When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. By the way, people who don't know, you were the director of marketing for American Apparel, correct? Yeah, it's a somewhat untraditional company, so it wasn't like a day where I magically got the title, but I was 21, 22 years old. Right, before I graduated from undergrad and college, where I've literally accomplished nothing other than getting into college and not failing out, right? You had already had a position where most people probably wouldn't have gotten until maybe their late 30s or early 40s generally for something like that, is that right? Yeah, that's right. And and look, you can tell yourself that story and that leads to you thinking you're a lot better than you are. Or you can tell yourself, I had to remind myself at the time, like, obviously, it's great for my career to have this title and I'm going to leverage everything I can out of it. But I also have to remember, like, this is not necessarily the equivalent position of being the director of marketing at Abercrombie & Fitch. Like, there are different companies on different levels, different circumstances. That being said, the stresses and the responsibilities and the temptations were all there, and the education was certainly there as well, but it was a whirlwind for sure, man. You mentioned earlier the idea that guys like Steven Pressfield, who've sold a ton of books, might turn around and say, well, you know, I'm no Jack Canfield, or whoever's name pops up. What if you have that, and you're not just keeping your ego in check, but for me, for example, I actually kind of have the opposite problem. Not that I, well, my ego's so in check, it's a problem. It, that's not what I'm saying. Self-conscious is actually more like it. Literally, I'll spend the entire Friday going through hundreds of emails, 90% of which are like, this show changed my life, I love this, I can't believe it's free, I wanna meet you sometime, and I'm thinking, this is really cool, but I'm not floating on top of the world like Jenny will say, cry me a river, you have 300 pieces of fan mail in your inbox, you should be on top of the world. I'll find myself saying either out loud or to myself, yeah, but look at like Joe Rogan, his show is so huge, it's so impressive, you know, we've got this little piece of real estate and it's great for everyone, but man, it's just so small, relatively speaking, and you start to beat yourself up. I find myself not in a weird spiral doing it, but it's almost like a bad habit where I'm constantly finding that it's gone beyond serving a useful purpose, right? It used to be like, all right, I'm hungry. I'm gonna get to that level. This is inspiring. It shows me what's possible. I'm really excited to be at that level someday. In the meantime, I'm gonna enjoy the process. It's gone beyond that to, man, is this even possible? Is what we have gonna eventually get there? And those moods change like the wind, but whenever I have that, it's not helpful and it sucks. It's wasted energy is what it is, right? Because you're not focusing it on actually making yourself better. You're not focusing it on you know feeling good or fulfilled. It's just sort of pointless anxiety and compulsive thinking. So I think I go through that as well. I wrote a piece recently about envy. I experience envy and jealousy like every other person the Stoics do this a lot. It's, it's can you break down this emotion logically and find what's at the root of it? And I think what's so interesting is like, you know, you compare yourself to someone else, but you don't actually ask yourself, okay, would I actually want to trade places with that person? Right? Oftentimes, it's like, hey, I like Joe Rogan's financial success or influence. I wouldn't actually trade places with him for, you know, X, Y, and Z reasons. Or 
I'm not actually willing to do the things that he did to get there. And yet I'm wondering why I don't have the same thing as him. So I try to break down some of those emotions logically. Like you're saying, it's like, look, I got 300 messages, 299 of them are positive, one is negative. Am I really going to let that one determine, you know, how I feel about myself? Maybe the proper response is not to let any of them change how I feel about myself, good or bad. I think what you say to yourself is, look, you're smart, you're talented, whatever you apply yourself to, you tend to be able to accomplish. So if this thing is actually important to you, if you actually want it, either apply yourself to it and see if you can do it, figure out why it's not important to you, and then stop expecting that you get to have something that you're not working towards. Yeah, that was a problem for me as I guess I should say child, even though it probably lasted until I was in my early 20s. And I see this a lot in other folks, too. It's just really hard to imagine the amount of work that people put into something when you're that young because of life experience. I don't think people are bad for thinking that. It's just you have no idea how much work it is. So when you see other people with that, you think, I want that. And I deserve it because I've been working toward it for six months now. It's so cliche now that you think, meanwhile, that other person has been doing this for 20 years. Now their 15th book is the breakaway number one bestseller that got them where they are. Or the way that I often have to think about it is, well, look, this person wrote five books that just crushed it before they started their radio show, which is popular now. Or this person has been doing XYZ for 10 years. Of course they have this huge following online. Why would you think you can accomplish that in a short period of time? And then you just kind of laugh at yourself because you realize how naive or how silly you are. Hopefully you get on with grinding. A lot of people give up, actually. Yeah. Or it's like, okay, let's say you have some friend who works on Wall Street and you find out, you know, this friend of yours made $4 million last year. And you're like, are you kidding me? I'm writing these books. I'm working super hard. And like, I'm not even I'm close to touching that, you know, and this jerk, you know, makes $4 million a year sitting at a desk in Manhattan and he's not even that good at it. Right. Or, you know, whatever you tell yourself to rationalize, you know, how this person is shouldn't be as successful as you are. And then what you don't go is, okay, like, look, this person went to this school, they did this work, they got this job. Could you not have done those things if you wanted? Probably. It's not as if like getting a job on Wall Street, like is, you know, a trillion to one odds, like it's a path. And if you pursue that path, you would be there. And it's not like it's too late to pursue that path. Like you and I couldn't become NBA superstars today because like that sort of physical and age constraints have sort of happened. It's like, I guess what I tell myself is like, I made a choice to pursue this thing instead of that thing. Where on earth do I get off thinking that I should have been able to pursue my path, which makes me happy and I chose and wanted, but then I should also get the rewards of someone else's path. It's like, you decide to pursue classical music, you can't sit alone at your hotel room and wonder why there's not mobs of young fans waiting outside to take a selfie with you. It's like, if you wanted that, you shouldn't have chose classical music, you should have chose pop music. Life is about choices and trade-offs, and you made a choice and a trade-off. What did you expect? I suppose. I think people think they want things that look good in the moment. That's part of the problem. And the distraction of looking at what other people have, that only exists with ego. If you don't care about how other people perceive you, or you care less than you care about, say, mastering your craft, it becomes a really easy calculation. Do I want tens of thousands of screaming young fans? Well, that would be cool, but 
I'd much rather create something that's more meaningful to me like I'm doing now than figure out how to remix a Justin Bieber song in that same niche that doesn't appeal to me at all. The trappings seem interesting and fun in the moment, but usually they're not something that you actually want, and yet we find ourselves yearning for them sometimes like we can't live without it. The chapter I'm most proud of in Ego is about Ulysses S. Grant, who was you know, a brilliant Civil War general. I talked about him in obstacle. He's a hero of mine. Well, after the war, he's one of the most famous men in America, and he decides to run for president, even though he knows nothing about politics and his strengths are not in politics. He runs for president, and he wins, and then he's like shocked that it doesn't go super well, and it goes pretty terribly, in fact, although he does get reelected. And then after the presidency, he and his son start a financial brokerage on Wall Street, and it just happened that they basically went into business with like a guy named Ferdinand Ward, who happened to be sort of the Bernie Madoff of his day. Grant loses everything, you know, feeling compelled to honor his debts. He actually pawns uh, his Civil War memorabilia to be able to like make all his investors whole. There is this letter that Sherman wrote, who is Grant's friend, William Tecumseh Sherman. He's saying, you know, Grant got himself into trouble because he said, quote, he aimed to rival the millionaires who would have given anything to have won just one of his battles. What Sherman was saying is it's like Grant risked everything that he had to impress these people on Wall Street who were already impressed with him and would have traded all of their millions to have experienced the glory and service that Grant had experienced. One, we don't realize that maybe other people that we're jealous of or competing with or that our ego is comparing ourselves against, that maybe they're not as happy or rosy as it looks from the outside. Also, we don't realize it's like, hey, we're running our own race here. And if we try to keep pace with other people and we're not sure what race they're running, that's a recipe for burning yourself out or hurting yourself, really. And you've got to know the path that you're on, the pace that you're keeping. And in a way, you kind of got to be able to tune everything else out because the Seneca has this great metaphor of like being on a path and not being distracted by all the different trails and footsteps that intersect that path. You know, that's an easy thing to say, but it's incredibly hard to do. And I think, you know, my sort of problems at American Apparel were a result of, you know, me being on this path as a writer, but having this sort of side path, you know, in my periphery. And as soon as it started to get a little busy over there, I drifted from the path that I was on. I feel very fortunate that I caught myself before I woke up at 40 years old and asked myself, you know, man, what the hell am I doing? So many people do that. And I can just tell you my inbox right now without looking at it probably has a dozen things like that from people of all ages, not just 40. There are 20 year olds that write me that stuff. I feel like I went to school for the wrong thing. And my first line is, thank God you figured it out right now. Right. It's like it would have been better to figure this out early, but the next best time to figure it out would be right now. Yeah. The best time to plant a tree was 100 years ago. And the second best time is right now. That's exactly right. It's like if what we're saying about, you know, not being distracted by other people, if you're not already aware of it, like, I'm sorry, but at least wake up to it right now. There's a quote from Publius Cyrus, who's this Roman slave who is famous for his proverb. He would say, you know, rivers are easiest to cross closer to their source, right? Because they get wider and deeper and faster moving the further they get away from the tiny little trickle where they begin. And I think it's the same way with these difficult problems in life. It's better that you realize you don't like what you're doing right now than it would be tomorrow or 10 years from now. 
So super true. And regardless of whether or not you're 40 or 50 and thinking about this, the way to philosophically handle this, and I find myself typing this out a lot in email, is everything you've done up now until this point has somehow prepared you for the road ahead. There's probably a billion parables that talk about that. However, it's not just empty words, because if you're 50 and you find out I don't wanna do this thing that I'm doing anymore, or I never liked it, the clarity that you have at that age from doing that is so sharp and so clear. It would have literally been impossible for you to have it any earlier than you have it now. It may be even impossible for you to realize it in the way that you do now any earlier than you do in this moment. It would have been great if you got super lucky, worked really hard in the right direction, and had some Ryan Holiday 19 working with 50-year-old people success. But at some level, Ryan, do you think that you almost got lucky, not with the success, like, oh, people like my books, but going, hey, shit, I found out what I actually like to do, and I really do enjoy this, this is great. Wow, I'm so lucky I found this when I was 16, 19 years old, instead of stumbling around like a lot of us do. Absolutely. I mean, there's a quote I have from Robert Louis Stevenson in the book where he's saying, knowing what you like is the beginning of wisdom and of old age. And so I've always felt a little prematurely old in that sense. There's plenty of stuff I have to figure out about myself and about life. But like what I want to wake up and work on every morning is thankfully not one of them. Like I know that. I think that's the other thing that people miss about like these theories about mastery or 10,000 hours or whatever. I don't think that I've mastered what I do. I don't even think I'm close. In fact, the reason I work so hard and I create and publish so much stuff is I feel like it's getting me closer to being good at what I do. That's me putting in the hours. People don't realize that it's like, okay, it might be 10,000 hours before you're a certified master at writing, let's say, or a certified master at interviewing. But that doesn't mean that you can't make a living at it much earlier or much sooner than that, right? And so, you know, finding that I loved writing probably happened around 18 years old. So I was able to do it. You know, I didn't sell my first book until 24. So, you know, there's a good period there where I wasn't getting paid for it or anything. I was still doing things in my life that writing was a part of. And so you can figure that thing out. You can get started on it. It can become viable, I think, sooner than people think. You're quoting a lot of other people. I'm gonna quote you right now. The most critical questions a person can ask themselves in life, who do I wanna be and what path will I take? And I think as far as practical application of this stuff goes, that's a pretty good one. When I was young, I didn't ask myself a lot of that stuff. I sort of said things like, I want to be well off and I want to enjoy my job, whatever. That's crap. That is not who you want to be. And there is so little information about what path you're going to take to get there. In fact, there's almost none. I'm trying to think if there's even any shred of anything. And they're just kind of these vague goals that end up not getting done and don't spur you forward because those exist in Narnia. Sure. I mean, and for me, I don't even think I necessarily knew that I wanted to be a writer so much as I knew that I really loved writing, like not me writing, but I loved the written word and I loved books. And so I gravitated towards people who were doing that. And then it happened that, hey, they said I had a little bit of talentedness and that I should pursue it. Gary Shandling, I was listening to him on Mark Marin before he died, and he was saying he wrote these jokes and he showed them to George Carlin. And George Carlin's like, what do you want from me? Are you asking me if this is good enough for you to pursue? And he was like, yeah, I guess. And he was like, yeah, it is. It's good enough for you to pursue. So I sort of got that recognition, you know, early on, and I was grateful for that. And then I said, okay, this is who I want to be. And how am I going to get there was sort of the next step. Like, let's say you wanted to be president, right? 
you don't start working on your campaign at 15 years old. You go, okay, let's look at the history of presidents of the United States. What traits do they tend to have in common? Okay, maybe some of them had military service. A lot of them went to really good schools or, you know, they started by, you know, getting elected to a small office in their town or region or they were successful in business. And then you go, okay, so in order to do this thing way off in the future, I've got to break it down into sort of composite pieces that are, when they come together, will qualify me or allow me to be president if everything goes right. You know, it's not walking around going like, I'm going to be president. It's like, hey, I got to be a congressman. So my goal for the next 15 years is to work myself into a position where I could run for a congressional seat. And so I think what I sort of thought is, okay, I want to be a writer. And I remember I asked a writer I knew, I worked for Tucker Max early on in my career. And he said, like, look, I'm not that great of a writer, but I have really good material because I've lived sort of a ridiculous life, right? My stories compensate for my writing. So he's like, writers live interesting lives. And so I said, okay, I'm going to go do stuff that's going to teach me or give me material to write about. And, you know, I went and I worked at American Apparel and there was a lot of experiences there. And I also happened to learn about marketing, which came in pretty handy in marketing, you know, my own stuff. But my first book was a book about media and marketing, which is what I developed expertise and unique knowledge in. And so I think for writers, so many of them are like, oh, I got to go to school to learn how to write. And I think they're just thinking about it totally the wrong way. Just like, you know, you said, okay, I want to be happy in what I do and I want to be financially well off. Those people are like, lawyers make a lot of money. I'm going to be a lawyer. You know, it's not well thought out. That was my actual plan, by the way. I was like, yeah, sweet, law school. I don't have anything else to do. I'll probably just do that. And that's why there's so many unhappy lawyers, I think. Oh, yeah. It's a high-performing mindset where you go, I killed it in college, or at least I think I did pretty well. I want to do something. I'm not sure what it is, but it's definitely going to involve some sort of high performance. I didn't take the pre-med prereqs. I'm not an engineer. I'm not really a computer science kind of person. People say that I argue a lot and that I'm an intellectual, so I should totally go into law. That is 98% of the people in law school you fall into that and then dot, 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 we are where we are, right? It doesn't even bear explaining how many lawyers are unhappy. It's like the most unhappy profession. Somehow dentists are also miserable, don't really get why. I think it's a very similar vocation in that no one's like, oh, I love teeth. It's more like my dad said dentists make a lot of money and it was relatively easy and a set path and I did it. They didn't actually meet any dentists or have any sort of youthful experiences. There's plenty of happy lawyers, and those are lawyers probably, I would imagine, who got into it because they actually loved the law or they loved the field in which they practice law. And that's a fundamentally different path than saying, lawyers make lots of money, I'm qualified on paper to be a lawyer, so that's what I'm gonna spend the next 50 years of my life doing. It's like, hey, lawyers drive nice cars. I'm someone who deserves a nice car, so I'm gonna do that. 
you can see where ego plays its part there too. It's the majority of it, because when you finally start making that amount of money, you've got what we call the golden handcuffs where you're tied to the job because you've started buying things to make you happy. It's a big downward spiral and there's never gonna be enough. If you watch Billions, written by Brian Koppelman, who's also been on the show, Axelrod, the guy who's billions and billions of dollars runs that hedge fund, he's maybe not directly competing with all these other folks, but there are hints of it where He's, oh, you gotta go talk to so-and-so. Oh, I don't wanna have to make a deal with that jerk face, you know? And there's all these egos, even these guys who have billions and billions of dollars and can buy anything they want, and it's just obscene, and they fly private in their own plane to see concerts and hang out with the band, they're still like, I'm not satisfied, I gotta make more, I gotta beat other people who are at my level. It's completely ridiculous, and it's never-ending. You're right, yeah, you've gotta go to that dentist's office, have that internship, you gotta have that legal internship, but getting back to the topic of ego in the first place, are high performers maybe more susceptible to ego? It seems almost like the examples in your book tend to focus on that, possibly because there's more literature about it, or maybe it's just more interesting, but it almost seemed like people with ambitions and talents and drives and potential, it's almost like ego comes with the territory. It absolutely does, and it also comes with the territory of unambitious people, I'm, I'm sure, but as you said, there's not a lot of literature around some loser who's also an egotist who never gets off his couch. Like, no one's writing about that guy. There's not many studies about him, so it's hard to make an example out of him, but it's two things. I think one, the more you're trying to accomplish, the more ego can function much in the way of a drug that sort of numbs you from some of the fear and pain that might come along with that difficult task that you're pursuing. And then I think also the stakes are higher. So ego is more easily seen as a culprit or a negative influence. Like in Billions, one of my favorite lines in the entire show is he makes some huge bet that everyone warns him against, or like over and over again, don't do this. And it blows up in his face and he loses a lot of money. And Wendy asks him, she's like, hey, what were you doing? And he's like, look, when people tell you you're Superman long enough, you start to think you can fly. And so I think that's the other part is that to have some ambition, right? Like you created your show from nothing and you created it before podcasting really existed, before it was a big thing, when people probably said podcasts would never amount to anything and that you should go get a job or whatever, but you didn't listen to them and you created something out of nothing. And so in a way, that's people telling you you can't fly and then you flew. And so now all of a sudden you think that you're better than everyone else, right? That's very seductive or tempting, right? It's like, even with my books, right? It's like, let's say my editor was wrong about something or told me something and I disagreed and I went with my gut and I turned out to be right. The problem is when you say, okay, I'm right always from now on. And it's especially true for people who have done feats that are physically impressive. Hey, I was the best fighter in the world or something. And then you're like, now I'm invincible. No one can touch me. And then it's like, hey, actually they can. And we're all fallible. When you have big ambitions, ego is bad. But it's when you have ambitions and you fulfill that ambition that ego is particularly potent and dangerous because it can mess with your head for the next venture that you embark on. And it does, and a lot of people who come through Art of Charm through boot camps and things like that come in 
either because of an ego fall, a relationship that disintegrated, or a career that didn't work out, or to get clarity on the next step for them, people who listen to the show kind of know, I'm not gonna blow sunshine up your skirt, neither are any of the coaches. AJ and Johnny are not gonna do that because it's not good for you, and we've seen it happen to other high performers especially, and young people. It's funny because ego is this weird affliction that kind of young people have it, and then you sweep the doorstep, or you sweep the floor, as you say in the book. You take the blow, and you get beat down a little bit in the beginning of your career, and you start to work yourself up, and then, oh man, that floor is getting dirty again. Sometimes you slip and fall on that dirty floor, and you realize, oh man, I've been ignoring this the whole time. I thought I had this handled. And you look back at when you had your last reality check, and it was like a decade ago, or something like that, and you go, oh crap, I brought this on myself. And maybe there's the ego in thinking that you have it handled. That's the most insidious part of it. It's like, you and I were both there. We saw someone talk recently and he said several times, like, I'm very self-aware. My strength is that I'm very self-aware. To me, that's like the ultimate form of unawareness or the ultimate form of ego, right? Is thinking that you've got it locked down and you're set. Everyone else struggles with this thing, but you don't. Like, I find there's a lot of people who are like, you know, I'm not one of those guys that's out there beating my chest, you know, saying that I'm better than everyone else. And it's like, yeah, you're the guy sitting on the bench whispering to the person next to him that you're better than everyone else, right? And it's the same thing. It's just expressed in a slightly different manner. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash charm. Just go to Indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Why is ego so dangerous? It seems obvious because we don't like egotistical people or egotistical people alienate themselves, but there's actually a lot of very specific dangers that come from it. One of them that was really striking for me was ego is the enemy of what you want and what you have. For example, mastering a craft Mastering a craft is something that I think about all the time. I wanna be the best interviewer. You know, one of the greatest shows around. If I'm thinking I've already made it, that's totally not gonna happen. 
I think that's right, especially because the craft is always evolving, especially now that technology has democratized it in a sense that there's so many more people doing it and innovation is so much easier, right? So maybe 50 years ago, you just needed to work on something in a couple of years and then you could coast the rest of your career. But it's so much more competitive and it's so much harder. And I think if you think that you're as good as you can possibly get at something, you're probably right because you can't get any better. You know, like there's an Epictetus quote where he's like, one cannot learn that which they think they already know. I think that applies to what we do. If you have decided that you've mastered something, the second you think that, your abilities have been sort of flash frozen. And I think they become very brittle after that. Whereas someone who sees themselves as a perpetual student of what they do, and that it's something that one cannot even dream of mastering even over the course of a life, but that one can get incrementally better every single day, that person is on a journey that I think will take them much further. I think you see this in sports, especially. It's like, okay, you're good enough to be in the NBA, but now you don't have a good enough jump shot. And then you add a jump shot to your game. Now you've got to add defense. Then you've got to add rebounding. And then you've got to add leadership. Like every task that we do, once we get good enough at it, opens up other things. You become a really good interviewer. Now all of a sudden you've got to figure out how to run the business that the interviewing has facilitated. And as soon as you start to expand that business, now you have to figure out how to manage some other element. That isn't always obvious to someone when they're just starting out. I think they think, hey, I just got to get good at this one thing and then I'm set for life. It can be tough and it's especially tough for successful people who can't maybe see what ego prevents them from doing because all they can see is, is what they've already done. You write about this as well in the book. There's a lot of people who they only look in the past at what they've created and they're kind of leaning on this to the point where it's impossible to do anything with them because they're constantly living in the past. They're living in the moment that they won the World Series 20 years ago and it's pathetic, but it's also extremely irritating and difficult and they end up achieving so much less because of that. Right, it's like you peaked in high school, dude. No one cares about the touchdown you threw in the semi-conference finals or whatever. Every day you're starting from scratch, basically, I feel like. And so that attitude, that sort of self-obsession or self-satisfaction, not only endangers what you have, because as they say, if you're not growing, you're dying, but it also prevents you from adding to those accomplishments because you've lost sort of the essential hunger and humility and work ethic required to do new things. One thing that you write about ego doing is it keeps us in our comfort zone. It's the reason we keep ego around in the first place because one question that comes to mind is, if this is so bad, how is it a problem for so many people? I mean, if it's so bad, why do we keep ego around? And the answer is that it's comfortable. But why is that in itself also bad? Well, so here's where ego works, especially when we're dropping out of college was something I did at 19, 20 years old. It was terrifying. I was essentially putting all my chips in the middle of the table before I could grow a beard. And my parents said, you're going to fail. This is an awful idea. Don't do this. You know, conventional wisdom said, don't do this. You know, a bunch of other factors. Would it have been nice to have been able to tell myself, you're a badass. This is going to be amazing. This is going to be the best decision you ever made. And everyone who doubts you is an idiot. 
and it's going to be smooth sailing from here on out and they can kiss your ass and that's the end of it, right? Like it would have been nice to have been in a cocoon of my own ego in the sense that it would have mitigated some painful emotions and feelings. And yet, and this is sort of the irony, it also would have made it much less likely that any of those things would have turned out to be true, right? Like I would have been much less likely to succeed. I would have been much less likely to be able to turn this into something in the same way that doing drugs is a nice way to address feelings of existential emptiness worthlessness or pain or anguish or sadness or fear. But it's not actually solving any of those problems. So in a way, it's just actually making you dependent on those feelings or worse, making you incredibly fragile in regards to those feelings. And so, for instance, sitting down to write a book, terrifying. Stephen Pressfield calls this the resistance, the resistance we feel when we're pursuing any creative project. Ego is a nice way to blow right through resistance. It's also a nice way to make something that is inauthentic and untruthful and doesn't resonate with people. What ego is doing is mitigating in the short term this unpleasantness and keeping us in our comfort zone. But the reality of creative work and entrepreneurial success and even general human happiness and flourishing is that you have to wrestle and feel precisely those feelings. There's that awesome Louis C.K. bit where he's like, the second you feel uncomfortable, you want to reach into your pocket and pull out your phone so you don't have to feel that. But the whole point of life is to feel those things and to push through them. So it's a short-term fix with long-term consequences that are pretty dire and crappy, even in the same niche, right? Like your career can be served short-term by having that ego pushing through that resistance, but long-term, if you keep the ego going, it will inherently limit what you're able to do and create. Yeah, I mean, look, one of my favorite bands is Alice in Chains. Me too, that's so random, yeah. So there's no argument the drug abuse and the addiction fueled the darkness and the beauty and the weird perspective of the music. But it ultimately killed the guy responsible for it. So I'm not sure that's like a worthwhile trait. Is there probably another better way for him to investigate and explore that darkness in the music? And so when you say like, look, there's lots of successful people with huge egos. Yeah, there's lots of successful musicians who are drug addicts. But ultimately, the addiction, however helpful it might have been in the short term, is not worth it in the long term or worse, it has fatal consequences in the long term. Yeah, there's definitely something to be said for the drug addiction angle of a lot of this. And it's not just drugs, actually. It's any kind of addiction or any kind of sort of side effect of this that can come as a result. Yeah, a lot of entrepreneurs are very manic. That doesn't mean that mania is the good thing. On the whole, it's usually a recipe for making bad mistakes or doing sloppy work or rushing in or through things. You've got to realize that it's usually they're successful sort of despite the mania or that the mania is a double-edged sword. Going back to the comparison angle, do you find that ego is worse or exacerbated by the vanity or the accessibility of internet and tech that creates almost this vanity comparison where, oh man, this person did this or this person just sold their company and now everyone's talking about it. Whereas 20 years ago, that person could have sold their company, you might have heard about it through friends a few days later, but you wouldn't see it in everything that you're doing on Facebook, on Twitter, in your newsfeed, on TechCrunch, everywhere that you get your news. It wouldn't happen all at once and be this sledgehammer blow. It would have been a trickle effect where you might have actually been happy for the person and instead you find yourself thinking, 
that you're a huge failure or that you deserve what they have. I think social media takes these sort of universal, timeless human concepts and amplifies them. Yeah. I could look at my own Instagram feed and be jealous, you know, like I'd be like, oh, that's awesome because it's a deliberately edited, filtered version, you know, selective take on what my life is like. It's so easy to forget that that's true for everything we see on social media for every other person. I know this couple and it's a very unhealthy, bad relationship, but every time they're fighting, they post like positive pictures on social media, essentially reassuring themselves, which they're fine to do, that everything's okay. It's interesting to me that people who don't know that this is happening probably see those things and feel bad about themselves, right? They're like, why isn't my relationship like that? You know, my girlfriend never says anything like that, or I don't say that about, you know, the person that I'm with. That's because what you're looking at is a lie. It's posturing and it's projection. It's not true. And so I think just the idea that you're like, oh, this person has more followers than me. Cult leaders were the only people who used to have followers 20 years ago. But now right. it's like a legitimate concern. And you get a daily snapshot of how many of them you have. These are not things that the human brain is really prepared to process. And if you don't parse through it and think about it properly, it can really mess with your head. I see this happening as well in businesses or in paths people take in their career. You wrote, we see risk-taking swagger in successful people in the media and eager for our own successes, try to reverse engineer the right attitude and the right pose. And I see this 2020 hindsight BS all over the place, especially living in Silicon Valley. You live in Austin, which is Silicon Valley off campus, whatever, south campus, but it's very, very similar, I would imagine, in some ways. A lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of companies romanticize this. They make it a story that makes us or them look good, and then everybody's trying to go, okay, if I want that, I've gotta have the right attitude, the right pose. You find this causal relationship that isn't really there, and this is dangerous. Yeah, it's like, how many people are trying to be Steve Jobs? In fact, Steve Jobs was actually a terrible CEO. He was a brilliant, creative mind who created some ideas and a company that it compensated for just how bad he was as a manager and as a human being in a lot of cases, right? And as you said, you don't realize all the work that went into being the guy who picks his outfits in advance and parks in handicapped spaces and blah, blah, blah. There's a story from Plutarch. I'm not even going to try to do the names and get it wrong. But basically, he was saying that after Alexander the Great died, all the potential heirs to his kingdom and throne, all his generals who wanted to be the next Alexander the Great, they mimicked the way that Alexander would walk and the way that he would dress and the way that his, you know, he trimmed his beard. And Plutarch was saying all of them, except for this one general who mimicked Alexander the Great in how he led troops into battle. It's like, you guys are missing the point. You're like thinking about how Steve Jobs wore the same outfit every day or the glasses that he wore as though that had anything to do with inventing the iPod. It's missing the point. You see that a lot, right? Like, ah, I started to wear only the white t-shirt and jeans so I don't have to think about what I wanna wear. And it's like, well, that's really cool for Mark Zuckerberg. It's a funny quirk. Yeah, maybe it does take away from him making a decision that he just really hated every morning and nobody can say, why do you wear the same outfit every day now? Because they know that's his trademark. On the other hand, that's not the reason he invented Facebook. Those were things that if he did them before, 
everybody would say this person is insane. And we all know crazy people that do crazy things. It only becomes brilliant when they have this scorecard that backs that up. Otherwise, they're just creepy or weird or bizarre or have social issues. Lighthouses are on the edges of, I guess, uh, jutting out rocks and things like that in the water to lead ships around them. If you just built a lighthouse in a random place or maybe 300 yards behind that rock, ships would crash into it all the time. Nobody would ever do that. And yet we're using a lot of these weird quirks or a lot of these sort of different paths that people say they have or that we're trying to figure out what they do to reverse engineer it. We're just building a lighthouse really far away from the the coast that's going to cause our own ship to crash later on. And we're kind of looking at this as false GPS. In fact, a real world example I was talking with, do you know Mimi and Alex Icon? I do. So they have this really successful YouTube channel, Instagram. I think they sell a bunch of different things like hair extensions. And they're super cool, super nice people that everybody loves. And I was talking with somebody else, this guy, like a junior professor or something at maybe London School of Economics, some really interesting, high-performing school loaded with smart people that analyze things. And he said, yeah, one of the things I thought was really interesting, we did a case study on Mimi and Alex Icon's YouTube channel, and in every shot, they have a variety of at least nine colors, including flowers that are always multicolored, and the flowers represent this, and the flowers get people looking at this in this way, and they always match with her dress, and she's doing that on purpose to show XYZ, and I sat down with Mimi and had lunch literally the day after that talk, and I explained that to her, and she just started laughing, and she goes, I just like flowers. That's why I have them. Totally. And so it's, you're not only missing the point, you're sort of confusing causation and correlation. The equivalent for me that I see a lot of people do is they read these websites that's like about writer's routines, you know, like here's how Hemingway typed or, you know, here's what so-and-so did. You can fall down this endless rabbit hole of studying like how to and best practices and hacks and all this stuff instead of sitting in the chair and writing or God forbid, having something unique and interesting to say. And so people don't do that. It's much easier to pretend and ape the style of a successful person than it is to get at the root of what made them great. Yes, exactly. And of course, we have to keep in mind exactly where we're going. And oftentimes we can't deduce that from where somebody else is now because they can't really do that. People often ask me, how do I launch a podcast? How do I become a better interviewer? And I'm just thinking, I literally have no idea where you would even begin other than cliches like practice makes perfect and you know maybe read this one book that maybe kind of helped me, although when I read it, I'm not sure what I got out of it. It's hard to say there's this clear backwards path, and especially when it comes to things like, how do I launch a podcast? I'm the worst person to ask, because I launched in 2006 with AJ when all you had to do was upload things to iTunes. There was no launch. And the technology we had back then, you'd never use the same hosting we used back then. You'd never use the same WordPress, if that even existed back then, type of plugins or whatever to launch the site and the show. It's ridiculous. Twitter wasn't a thing people used, as far as I know. Nobody was using social media to market stuff. I think I was on Facebook because I had an invite because I went to a certain school. There was no such thing as influencer online at that point. You can't look backwards and emulate what people are doing because even they can't tell you what happened. And you can get the smartest people in the room, like the London School of Economics, together, and they'll say, oh, one of the keys is you gotta have flowers in every shot. And it's just completely speculative. Very rarely are people able to reproduce the effect based on those analyses. It's almost never happened, as far as I know. 
And I think it's also really humbling for you once you have been successful to remind yourself like, hey, I wasn't some genius that figured all this out that knew exactly where I was going. I took a chance. That chance got a little bit of validation and I explored it and iteratively I built this business or this empire or whatever it is. Hey, I'm the expert. I did this. You should listen to me tell you how you should do it. And it becomes this cycle where all of a sudden your complicated, nuanced, up and down history becomes this really smooth, gratifying, impressive narrative about how you can predict the future, basically. How do we control the ego? We know it can be controlled. It's not a power you're forced to satiate at every turn. How do we start to manage these things? Are there practical exercises, questions we can ask ourselves, things like that that we can take after the show and go, all right, figure this out, figure that out, ask yourself this all the time. What can we do that's practical and applicable? There's not like, hey, here's the ego checklist, and if you run this every day, maybe someone can make that. I don't know what it is. But my point is that having this discussion and thinking about these things inherently humbles the ego and keeps it at bay. Are there sort of certain career paths that I advise? Sure. If you work with or surround yourself with people who are much smarter and more successful than you, for me, I worked with Robert Greene and every day I would wake up and work for this author who's a thousand, a hundred times better than me. I never had the opportunity to think, oh man, I've got this. I'm amazing because like I could see every day that there was stuff left for me to do. So, you know, it's surrounding yourself with the right people and subsuming yourself in an inherently difficult, ever changing task. I think that's a big part of it. One of my favorite sections of the book I talk about this thing that French philosopher Pierre Hadot calls the oceanic feeling. And basically saying it's like, look, when you're alone on a beach next to the ocean, you naturally feel very small for a second, right? Because it's this unending, unstoppable force of which you could be tossed around like a cork inside of. I think being in nature, experiencing things that are much bigger than you, of which you are a tiny infinitesimal point, is also a compelling way to attack ego. I'm a big proponent of physical exercise. I do some form of strenuous physical exercise every single day. Why? Because it gives me a task to complete that is hard and difficult, and I have to be fully present to do. My mind can't wander. I can't be sidetracked. It's like I have to do this thing, and it kicks my ass when I do it. I think there's little practical things here or there, but really it's asking yourself these tough questions and probing and looking inward, re-examining your priorities and principles on a regular basis that I think does the majority of the heavy lifting for ego. So sitting down and thinking about maybe what's truly important to you and then taking steps essentially to forsake the rest and also to focus on getting to that goal instead of finding these proxies. With social media, for example, it started off as people showing off on social media, and now social media is the actual accomplishment. It's no longer, here's this thing I did or, or that I'm doing right now. It became, here's what I'm eating right now. And then it became, I need to post about this because I'm curating online or whatever. You start to lose yourself in these proxies, thereby never really accomplishing much of anything. Yes. And I think asking yourself, who do I want to be, what are the behaviors that I like or admire, and holding yourself up against some sort of model. I'm not a religious person, but I could see the value in a what would Jesus do bracelet, right? It's like, okay, 
this is the platonic ideal. This is what I sort of guide my behavior against. If you were to cancel this interview two minutes before, be like, Ryan, I don't have time for this. Like, uh, I don't want to talk to you anymore. Blah, blah, blah. Like you did something like rude or offensive. Naturally, like you're going to have the like, what? Like you're going to feel that defensiveness. You're going to feel your own sort of ego. Like, how dare he talk to me this way? You're going to have that reaction really fast. Right. And I'm not saying that, hey, if you meditate 10 minutes every morning, that's magically going to go away and you're never going to feel that. What I'm saying is, can you have enough discipline to hit pause for a second and then decide rationally and calmly and without ego how you're going to respond to this, right? What are you going to do about this? And is your response going to make things better or is it going to make things worse? And I think where ego is the most problematic is for people who are so busy and so active and they have so much initiative that they're just jerked around by their emotions all the time and that those emotions often bog them down in pointless fights and battles and conflict. What about subjecting ourselves to that uncomfortable feeling, the defensiveness that we feel when our assumptions are challenged or when we feel not attacked but challenged in a way that gets us outside of our comfort zone? Should we be looking for opportunities to essentially change our mind? Not just change your mind, but be challenged on the things that you hold dear. Reading books that are above your level or are written by people that you disagree with or having conversations. Like I try to think it's like, okay, I'm gonna go talk to this person. I very much disagree with them on pretty much everything. My goal in this conversation is to not lose my temper. Can I just accomplish that? And I'm gonna focus sort of exclusively on getting that out of this given scenario. So I think there's value in making sure that you're not existing in a bubble of your own comfort where you're not just being told everything that you want to hear all the time. Okay, that makes sense. So bringing ourselves into a, a place where we've, uh, maybe you didn't even have to cultivate this, a circle of people or friends or mentors that will give you honest feedback and not just feel like they need to placate you. Yeah, I mean, look, that's gotta be the reason that a lot of really successful, let's say musicians will release an album and be like, what were they thinking? Who is this for? It's probably lost that connection to their fan base, to their audience. And I think every creative person and entrepreneur has got to worry about that. How am I keeping that fluid, real connection? It's not that I'm, hey, I'm putting my finger to the wind and just letting them lead me, but also how am I making sure that I don't think that I've got the Midas touch and everything I touch turns to gold? One question that I love from the book is whenever you feel pride, you can ask, what am I missing right now that a more humble person might see? And more importantly, what am I avoiding or running from with bluster, franticness, and embellishments? That's powerful because you have to ask that question right in the moment when you really don't want to. <laughs> totally. I mean, one of my favorite books is The Gift of Fear by Gavin DeBecker. And I just read that yesterday. That's so funny. Really? Well, so he has a question in that book. He's saying, you should ask yourself when you're worried or anxious, what am I missing going on around me that would keep me safe because I'm consumed with this anxiety or worry? And I think you can apply the same thing with pride. If you tell yourself that was perfect, I did an amazing job, you're going to feel that sort of surge of pride within you. What you're not seeing is the thing you could have done 1% better or a little bit difficult. You know, I tell the story in the book about the Patriots drafting Tom Brady. They took Tom Brady in like the sixth round. He was like the 200th plus pick of the entire draft. They didn't even really want him. It was just sort of there. 
So they could have felt pride when two years later they won the Super Bowl. They had probably one of the best picks in the history of football in terms of ROI as he would go on you know, to play 12 plus seasons, win multiple Super Bowls, multiple MVPs, multiple championships. You could feel pride in that accomplishment. What they felt instead was, man, how was our picker so off? How did we let this guy wait until the sixth round? I think that's a much more constructive attitude particularly for an organization. As an individual, you want to make sure you're not kicking yourself all the time. The opposite of pride is not disgust and self-loathing. The opposite of pride is just awareness and honesty. And so I think you've got to ask yourself, hey, is pride the most constructive feeling I could have right now? Ryan, thank you so much for your time. This has been amazing. Thanks, man. It's always good to talk to you. Really interesting episode. Went a little bit longer than usual, but I'm fully okay with that. I think this is one of those problems that creeps up on us, and that's why it's so insidious. And when it does, that's unfortunately when it's the hardest to catch ourselves in the moment and do the right thing that is required in order to manage it. So it's all that constantly sweeping the floor. There were a lot of notes I took in that book. We went through just a couple of pages, and I think we went through less than one-eighth of what I had actually prepared for the show. So there's a lot there. If you like Ryan's books, you'll love this one. If you don't know Ryan's books, you can go ahead and start with this one as well. I think it's a great intro to his work and to his writing, and it's very, very well done. If you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank Ryan on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well as the other resources mentioned on the show. And you can tap our album art in most mobile podcast players to see the cheat sheet for this episode. And we'll link to the show notes directly on your phone as well as a link to the book, of course. I'm also on Twitter, at The Art of Charm. It's a great way to engage with me, and I post a lot of things there that I don't share on the show or anywhere else. Also, don't forget about the challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge, or text CHARMED to 33444, that's C-H-A-R-M-E-D, to 33444. We'll take you step-by-step, improving your networking and connection skills, and inspiring those around you to develop a personal and professional relationship with you. We'll also email you our fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier on the show. I'm also doing regular videos with drills and exercises to help you move forward every single week. It'll make you a better networker, it'll make you a better connector, and it'll make you a better thinker. That's theartofcharm.com slash challenge, or text CHARMED to 33444. This episode of The Art of Charm was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor. Show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Go ahead and tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. Now stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and more at theartofcharmpodcast.com.